Please be seated. <clears throat> Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to read verses 1 to 17, but we're really just focusing on verses 1 to 11, and we will go over the rest of the verses next Wednesday. <clears throat> well, this really, <clears throat> this really helps us uh, to understand that when the Scripture commands us to do something, like in the New Testament, for example, of course, we have a number of passages that, that God's people are commanded to do things, whether it's the, the way that we live or the way that we interact between one another. What are these particular commands built upon? That's the question. When the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, says things like, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, what's that built upon? When the Apostle Paul says, walk worthy of your calling, or walk worthy of the calling by which you've been called, walk worthy of Christ. Uh, when the psalmist says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake, it's the same idea of walking in paths of righteousness. Upon what is this built? I mean, what's the foundation here? What are any of the commands and statutes built upon? And it's built upon these words here in Exodus chapter 20, which are known to us as the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, meaning the Ten Words. You know, when you look at passages like, you can hold your place there in Exodus chapter 20, and this is just an example for us uh, to, to kind of bring our thoughts into what, what's going on here. When you look at Exodus, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, you have the Apostle Paul, we're jumping in, Verse 22 there, he says this, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear." Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from, from, away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now if you think of the things that the apostle is saying just in that one particular passage of scripture, there's a number of those commandments that are coming to mind. Because when we're talking about the Ten Commandments, these are not things that, that are just Old Testament ideas or Old Testament truths or Old Testament law. <clears throat> we're talking about 
what's referred to as the moral law of God, which is still in effect for those uh, of us that are in Christ even today. It is still uh, needful for the people of God to know what these are and to seek to adhere to them because they are right in the sight of God. They are often quoted in the New Testament. Jesus quotes them to the rich young ruler when the rich young ruler says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. The Apostle Paul refers to the commandments. Jesus summed up in the well-known text that he is often quoted where Jesus sums up the whole law. To love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. I mean, these are New Testament concepts that are built upon what we're finding here in Exodus chapter 20. We don't relegate the Ten Commandments to simply being an Old Covenant idea or Old Covenant stipulation. What do you think of when you hear the Ten Commandments? Do you think, well, that's just archaic? Uh, do you think that that's just too restrictive? Is that some of the ideas that come to our minds when we think of the Ten Commandments? When we think of the law? Usually when we think of law, that's one of the first things that come to our minds, at least in laws in America. That's just restrictive or whatever. What do you think of when you hear about the law of God and the need to, to receive the law of God, the need to keep the law of God, to live by the law of God? Does it abhor you? Do you think it's not relevant? What are, what are your thoughts? Do you delight in it? When you're looking at the law and we're, we're thinking about things of how to live before Christ in a way that honors Him, we're thinking about how, how to live in such a way that Christ will be honored in our, in our lives. And this passage right here is the foundation for our Christian living. If, I mean, when you're looking at the Ten Commandments, it's really the, the core of our faith and living before God. Is, is this passage here, these truths that are contained here. For in them it teaches us how to live before God in a way that honors Him. And it is for our good to adhere to them and also for the good of our neighbor. One particular writer had stated that the Ten Commandments is really like the Bill of Rights for Christians. In this sense, not only does it provide us a way of understanding what is pleasing before God and how we ought to live righteously before Him, but it also protects you from others. And it keeps you from offending others. And so it is protecting your neighbor if we adhere to these commands of our Lord. We are protecting, we are being protected from each other if we do what is written. These laws also, when you think about the Ten Commandments and you think about the, the entirety of the law, you know, over 600 laws that are contained in the Old Testament, they're all built upon these ten. These ten, the moral law, are the foundation for the civil law. They're the foundation for it all. Why is it when, when you look in particular laws in, in the book of Leviticus and you're, you're reading through some of these and you're like, you know, why does it say these particular things like this? You know, Why does it say you have to build a parapet wall around the top of your house? 
because you have to protect your neighbor when he's over here at your house. Why? Because you shouldn't commit murder. It goes back to this, this particular truth. Why is it you need to, to, uh, to make certain or take certain precautions when it comes to your animals, like your ox, making sure that he's kept and he's not being able to get out and to, to gourd someone? Because you have to protect your neighbor against death because you shall, you shall not murder. It, these particular commands go back to these ten. They are built upon them. They're extensions of them. When you think about the laws of sexuality and, and all of that, it goes back. It's an extension of what is being said in the commandment of not committing adultery, of fidelity within the marriage. Why should you not have unjust balancing scales as, as the law requires too? Because you shouldn't steal. So when you're looking at the civil laws, you're looking at the entirety of the law, they're built upon these ten to help govern this particular nation that God had called out of Egypt. And then these particular ten are still applicable and still in effect even for believers on this side of the cross. They are not to be looked at with disdain or to look at, looking at them as if they have no purpose or they have no meaning to us. They are the foundation on which we understand how we ought to be pleasing God by our very lives. So as we work through these, I pray that we would indeed understand that and just see that very clearly. Now, tonight we're just going to go over really the first four commandments that really deal with our relationship vertically to the Lord. And then next Wednesday we'll get into some of these others. If we don't get these right, then we're not going to get the others right. When it comes to not committing murder and not coveting and not stealing and not lying, what keeps us from doing these things or, or, or keeps us from or fighting within ourselves not to do these things is because we want to keep a good relationship with our Lord. If we care anything about that, that's, that's the primary thing that, that keeps us from doing these others, these other prohibitions that are given within the law. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love the Lord your God with your, the entirety of your being. So I pray that as we look here, we'll see that because these are important, the foundation of New Testament commands. And that's why it is needful for us to look over these. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And like I said, we'll read down to verse 17, but we'll really focus on the first 11 verses. <clears throat> this is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Scripture. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, 
but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or, fem- or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you that you truly reveal to us the very things that we can do in order to please you, in order to demonstrate our love for you, of how we can honor you by our very lives. I pray, Father, that as we work our way through these commandments, that you would help us to see the relevance and the need that we have to, to keep the things that are written, not to gain our salvation, but because of it. Thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have made us your own, and that you have granted us such grace in Christ Jesus. Father, do a mighty work within us all that you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we really left off with the night of the Passover. The night of the Passover, we remember that they had to put blood above the doors the, the angel would pass by. Uh, we remember that there was not a house in all of Egypt that did not have someone dead in it when the angel passed through and killed all the firstborn of Egypt. It was at that particular time that Pharaoh told Moses, get out, take your people, go. And so the people of God have left Egypt. We Read, of course, that Pharaoh had pursued them. That when they got to the Red Sea, the Lord parted the waters. They were able to walk over on dry land. And it's very interesting. (laughs) It really just shows the humanity and the nature of humanity. That even after all of these amazing things that the Lord had done, all the plagues that befell Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, I mean, you're walking through on dry land with a wall of water on either side of you. Because the Lord has parted it, and it is an amazing miracle. And then when they get to the other side and they begin their journey, they begin complaining. Continually complaining. So the Lord gives them manna. The Lord gives them quail. They complain even more, wanting water. The Lord gives them water. And it's it's an amazing thing as you read through those 
those chapters leading up to the giving of the law in Exodus 20 uh, of just how ungrateful the people of God were even after all that they saw the Lord do. And their complaint was really, you brought us all the way out here and we're going to die. We were better off back in Egypt. And you think of saying things like that, of, of how offensive that that is, not just to Moses, who was the one commissioned to lead them out of the land, but to the Lord their God who did all these amazing works to demonstrate his glory to them. And they say things like, we were better off back then. And it's almost saying, we would have been, we would have been better off had you not even shown up. Instead of the gratefulness that they should have had that the king of the universe, the Lord their God, the God of their fathers, has actually appeared to them, has actually performed mighty works in their midst. Instead of being grateful, they complained, murmured, complained against Moses, the servant of God. And yet, though we look at that and, and granted we, we, we say to ourselves, how is it that this can even happen? But this is the natural state of man. This is exactly what natural man does, even in the face of the great works of God that he's performed. That in itself should be a great indicator to us of the necessity, that just the needfulness of the new birth in order to change our perception of things. So Moses brings the people out. They leave Rephidim. They're going towards Sinai. And the Lord says to Moses in chapter 19, I'm going to come down in a thick cloud. And we go on to read that the Lord consumed the mountain with fire. And so the, the, had the, the clouds there and all of that. He was going to speak to Moses in the hearing of the people. So Moses is allowed to come up. He's able to bring Aaron with him. The people are down <clears throat> at the base of the mountain. And it is here that the Lord is going to deliver to his servant Moses the very foundational laws that are going to govern the people of God. And before he begins these laws, there's the reminder the reminder of who he is and what he did. And we've talked about this before, how it is that the Lord just never just comes out and says, do this, do that, do this, do that. No, he always appears and he always introduces something about himself, something that he has done, whether it's the faithfulness of who he is. I'm the God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. And now he is reminding the people that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's always that reminder before you get to the therefores. And it's just the same way as it is in the New Testament. And a great example of that, the Apostle Paul spends 11 chapters in the book of Romans expressing the very things that we have received in Christ as a result of the great grace that has been extended to us. You get to chapter 12, then you get the therefore. It's the same as it is in Ephesians. All the things that has been accomplished in Christ, you've been made alive, you've been 
the, the mystery has been revealed to you. The forgiveness of sins has been granted to you. All of this. Then you get to chapter 4. Therefore, walk worthy of the calling by which you've been called. So it's the same. It's the same regardless if it's within the old covenant or it's within the new. There's always the reminder of what God has done. And in light of what he has done, then you have the command thereafter. In the first commandment, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now remember, these first couple of commandments, these are the ones that that deal with our vertical relationship with the Lord. The first thing he says, no other gods before me. And that means no other gods before my face is the idea. Going to the London Baptist Confession and Catechism, we read this. What is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. What is forbidden? What is forbidden in the first commandment is the denying or the not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due unto Him alone. The prohibition here is there are no other gods besides Him and so to conjure up any other gods is an offense to the one true God, the only God who does exist. There are no other gods. That's that's the whole point of the first commandment. There are no other gods. Do not make any other gods. Do not serve any other gods. There's no other gods. They're figments of man's imagination. That's why with any other gods that you read about or that you study about, they're just like man. There's no uniqueness in them. They're just as immoral as man or the way that they are depicted, which will, well, I'll go ahead and speak on that now. And the way that they're depicted is always depicted as something creaturely. That's why the Apostle Paul says that professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for that of corruptible man and a four-footed beast. Man naturally... He can only think to himself or conjure up in himself something that is familiar to him, which is him alone or the things that he sees within creation. And the Lord is saying here, there's no other gods. He's he's absolutely unique. He's, He's in that category all to himself. And he says even in Isaiah, I know of no other gods. I know of no other rock. I know of no other Savior. And what is it that man does naturally in his rebellion against God? Think of how man has rebelled against just the first commandment. You shall have have no other gods before me. Man makes himself a God. He is the measure of all things. Man will make idols bow down and worship them. A God after his own liking. Just so he can have the appearance of being religious, he will, he will 
take some type of a, an, an idol and he will call it his God. You think of the pantheon of gods among men in Greek and Roman mythology, in Norse mythology, or it's in Egyptian mythology, or Indian mythology, or, or Hindu mythology. I mean, there's, there's just so many, and it's all the same. They cannot rise above their own conception of God. That's why when you look at, regardless of what myths that you're looking at, they're all basically the same. Because man can never rise above his own understanding, his own finiteness, to come up with a God, well, like the God of the Scripture. Man left to himself would have never come up with the God of Scripture. There are no other gods. You shall have no other gods before me, before my face. Because the only God who is is, is, is the only one in existence. Anything else is a false god. It's a false idol. He says, I know of no other gods. That's one of the first things about keeping a right relationship with the Lord is to understand that there are no other gods. You're not God. I'm not God. We're not the measure of all things. There are no other gods in the sense of, well, the Hindus have their gods and then the, the Christians have their gods, the Muslims have their gods, and it's, 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 not, it's not it at all. There's only one God, and any other so-called God is a false God. That's why when it comes to the exclusivity of the Christian faith, that's why we stand firm on that. There are no other gods. So we don't, we don't give leeway to that. We don't, give, we don't give an inch when it comes to the acknowledgement of any other gods because we know, according to Scripture, there are none. And so it's not a matter of us trying to have peace with other people to say, well, I acknowledge, okay, you believe in your gods, but, but our God's pretty cool too. You might want to check out our God. Like, no, your gods are nothing. They are the figment of your imagination. Our God is holy and beyond our understanding. That's why, again, man could never come up with a God. You think of the triune nature of our God. Who could have come up with that? Three divine persons in the unit of one God? That hurts the mind to even try to fathom that. That's why when man tries to reason within himself to try to, to come up with some answers, that's why he says, nope, there's three gods. Or nope, you only have one God who puts on the face of the Father and who puts on the face of the Son and who puts on the face of the Holy Spirit to, to interact with man in different ways. Or really, no, you don't have three gods and you don't have one God who claims to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as far as a modalistic view of God. No, 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 no. You only have really one God, but then the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're, they're lesser gods. That's why man consistently comes up with all kinds of heresies when it comes to the concept of God because when he tries to reason within himself to understand it, he's inevitably going to fall into error. Again, because he could never have come up with the concept of the one true God. Because he's beyond our understanding. And if it weren't for the fact of him speaking to us in what Calvin calls baby talk, we could have never understood 
never come to understand the one true God. That's why he is unique above all other so-called gods. There is that IU relationship that exists within the triune nature of God. That there are three persons, but one in essence, one in substance. And the scriptures make very clear consistently that there is only one God. Not three. Not a modalistic God who puts on different faces. He shall have no other gods before me, he says. That takes care of any other God. Get, get this one right first. There's only one God. All other gods are false. Now, how do you worship this God? That's really what's contained in the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In the London Baptist Confession and Catechism, what is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. What is forbidden? What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment, commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Now this is one of the main reasons that during the time of the Protestant Reformation that when the, the priests were being converted, for example, like Luther, he was a priest and then he's converted to Christ some of the very things that they began doing was to take out all the icons, take out all the statues that were in the churches because there is no likeness of God that could ever reveal to us the majesty and the glory of who He really is. So take them all out. Get rid of them. Take out all the statues. Take out all the crosses that depict Christ on the cross. Get them out of here. That's, that's the reason why they did this. Because to have some type of an image of, of God, and this isn't having to do with worshiping false gods. He's already, he's already cleared that up in the first commandment. This is dealing with how we ought to be worshiping the one true God. And there are no images that we could ever make. No images that could ever depict who He really is. And that's why they are not used in worship. That's why we don't have any, any, any uh, statues and, and big crosses with Christ on them as the Catholic Church does. Any kind of icons like that. Because the main thing is when you go to the Lord and worship, the very thing that should not be in your mind is some type of a, a concept or an image of God. Or looking at a statue or something like that as, as you are bowing, bowing your head before the Lord or as you're, you're going to the Lord in prayer and you're picturing this in your mind. You know, it's interesting that the very thing that he is talking about here is the very thing that the children of Israel ended up doing when they made the golden calf. They didn't call the golden calf Apis or the other Egyptian god that is depicted with the head of a cow. They called that thing Yahweh. 
It was an attempt, a poor one, on their part to try to worship the Lord their God, to try to worship Yahweh. But here's the very thing that we need to understand when it comes to worshiping of the true God and the very thing that made Israel unique among all the nations. Worship is not visually stimulated. We are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's not visually driven. In every other religion it was because there was always a concept of a God somewhere. There was always an idol. There was always a statue or whatever. But this is not so when it comes to the people of God, of Israel. But the Lord says there are none. Because anything that you liken him to be like is, again, going to be creaturely. Because that's all we know. And that's why they are not used within worship. That's why we worship him in the way that he has prescribed us to worship him. No images can ever depict the glory and the majesty of God. What would they be like? Again, even if you even if you make it without a face or something like that and you just make this big image and and it's faceless and maybe it just has this shining radiance that still not still not worshiping or depicting rather the glory and the majesty of God. It doesn't heighten his glory, it diminishes his glory. Again, worship of God is not visually based. That's why we speak of seeing Him with, with, with eyes of faith. Because within His Word, the very things that we are revealed to us from His Word is not an image, but His character and His nature. And His character and His nature, which is, which, which is driven... In all of the passages of Scripture, it reveals to us so much about Him. That in itself is what permeates the mind and what permeates the heart. This is His character. This is His nature. Though I cannot see Him, I know Him because of His, His, His revealed character. His attributes laid out for me. And that's why it's not visually based. Again, that was unique among the people of God. It's unique among the Christian faith. We don't worship icons. We don't worship statues. Even though we may call it God or we may call it Christ or we may whatever. It only diminishes His glory and His intrinsic value. It lessens it. It doesn't heighten it. It may heighten the experience for the worshiper. But if you're worshiping and it's emotionally driven because you see something, you may get all hyped up, but you're accomplishing nothing. Because the one true God says, I'm not in that idol. I'm not in that icon. So when it comes to worship, we worship God based on what he has revealed about himself. And we do so because he says here in his word, he is a jealous God. That means he's zealous for his own glory. He's passionate about his own glory because he is unique. He is holy and unique 
and pure and perfect. Anything we make is going to be a blemish. It's going to be imperfect. So it's, it's, it's a matter of him being, what is due to him and what is worthy of him is not at all to try to make anything that could ever depict on who he is because anything that you come up with is what he made. Not a reflection of who he is, it's what he made. He says, You shall not worship them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And that's a little bit of a clue there on these particular commandments and why we ought to be keeping them, why we ought to be striving to do them. Because it is in showing him that we love him as to why we do it. The third commandment, the third commandment is, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, According to the London Baptist Catechism, what is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. And what is forbidden? The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. Now, when we talk about taking the Lord's name in vain, the very thing that we first begin with when it comes to this particular commandment is the very name of God itself. And what I mean by that is you, know, you hear people all the time using profanity, using God's name in profanity, whether it's GD or people say, you know, Jesus Christ in a way that is, that is not honoring to the Lord. They say it in passing because of maybe something that happened or whatever and they just they are aggravated and they they say it in that kind of a way and that's profaning the name of the Lord it's taking it in vain and as Dr. Lawson said you know some people may say well I didn't mean anything by it that's the problem you didn't mean anything by it it was meaningless to you to use the title of the Lord of his name in in an empty meaningless way that's the problem When we think about taking the Lord's name in vain, we think about how the Lord has revealed himself through his names and through his titles. And to just think of them in just such a passing way and to diminish them and diminish the nature of why God has brought them to us is to take his name in vain. It's to look at it as meaningless. You think of the Lord your God, the one who is the all-glorious, only sovereign, all of that, to speak his name in a way that is meaningless and empty the one who created it and sustains it and every breath that we take is because he is sustaining us every moment and then to think so little of his name and his titles that reveal so much to us God's attributes as one writer says his attributes his nature the totality of his being and especially his glory are are reflected in his name. You think of some of those names. 
some that we are familiar with. Yahweh, or coming into English, Jehovah. El Elyon, the God Most High. Names that we find within Scripture. Elohim, the Mighty One. El Shaddai, Almighty God. The Ancient of Days, the First and the Last. The Alpha and the Omega. Adonai, the Master, the Sovereign. Within His names and within His titles, there is a revelation given to man concerning who He is. He's the God Most High. He's the one above all the other gods. The strength of Him is is over all. He is the God who sees all. He is the God who provides. So many different titles that are given to him that reveal to us of his nature and his character and his attributes. And how dare we then take these very names that reveal the infinite to the finite and say it's meaningless. It's all in vain. It's empty. There's nothing there. He goes on to say this. There is also, one writer says this, there is also the sense in which people take the Lord's name in vain when they claim to be Christ's. When they claim to be the people of God. There's also that particular understanding when it comes to taking his name in vain. One of the things that was written there about what is forbidden in the third commandment, the third commandment forbiddeth all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. That's why it comes back to the people of God who make him known. So what many theologians would look at then is for those who take the name of the Lord upon themselves, who claim to be Christ, who identify themselves as, as a Christian, who pray in His name, but who deliberately rebel against Him. They have taken His name in vain. For they claim that the name of the Lord is upon their hearts. When He isn't. That's why when we talk about things like apostasy, or the falling of falling away. That's why there is a greater condemnation for those that claim to know him and then outright reject him than for those that never heard him. Never heard of him. That's why the writer of Hebrews speaks of those who apostatize as they trample underfoot the Son of God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews uses that language that our God is a consuming fire. Perhaps that's why the Lord says there, For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And a great example of that is in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out devils in your name? Did we not do mighty miracles in your name? And I will profess to them, I never knew you taking the Lord's name in vain. 
Sometimes we just limit that understanding to particular words that we say. But there, there's more to it than that. Of taking his name in vain. And then the fourth. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. And it's grounded in the creation account. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, the children of Israel based on the creation account itself, which also helps us to understand that if they are to work for six days and then rest on the seventh day, and he likens that back to the time in which he had created, that is a helpful uh, implication to express to us that it was literal days in Genesis in which the Lord created. They were to work six days. The Sabbath day was the Saturday it was from sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. Do no work. It was a day that was dedicated unto the Lord. It was for worship. It was for the reading of the law. It was for, for families to, to worship the Lord. It was a day consecrated just for Him. A day in which to rest from all your labors and to focus yourself solely upon Him. This is really the only commandment that if we look at the ten, the only commandment that has changed a bit. Because Jesus said that he's Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath, as the writer of Hebrews says. He is our rest. And that's why if we look within the New Testament and we see then how the believers, as a result of the finished work of Christ, where the, the old has passed away and something new has come, a new creation has come. As you are a new creation in Christ, that's one of the first things that that we understand within the New Testament about the rebirth, the new birth, is that you are new creations. And that He has brought about a better covenant, made upon better promises. And that's why you find the, the Christians within the New Testament that they're meeting on the first day of the week, on the day in which He was resurrected. Because it was in that day that He conquered Sin. He conquered death. He conquered the enemy. And he secured the salvation of his people. So they meet on the first day of the week. They give themselves over to the apostles' teaching. They break bread together. They take up the collection uh, for the saints. All of these things are done on the first day of the week, which is understood as the Lord's Day. This is a day in which needs to be understood that this is, the, this is the, the set time in which the people of God focus themselves upon the Lord their God and collectively come together in order to honor and to worship Him. To ascribe to Him glory and honor. So, though the day has changed, it doesn't change the implication of what the day was for. Now, there's something else here that is very interesting. 
at least I think it's interesting, um, that we read, would like within the fifth commandment, as we'll get into, where it says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And it's aimed at the children. But the fifth commandment is built upon the fourth. Because the fourth commandment is really aimed at the family, aimed at the parents. You can't have the fifth commandment without the fourth. So the responsibility of the people of God is to, to worship, to, to teach our children to worship, to gather with the saints and to offer the Lord praise and thanksgiving of who He is. And as a result of us trying to steer our children in the right way in the Lord, to raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord as the Scripture tells us and all of that, as a result of that, then the command comes to the children. Honor your father and your mother. But it's grounded in the fourth of the priority of worship in the family. The priority of worship when we gather corporately, but the priority of worship in the individual family. And this is where we often fail. The days that are set aside in order for worship are really just Sunday and Wednesday. But that's when we gather collectively. That's when we're all together. But that doesn't put the priority of worship on the family, in the individual family. There has to, and we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, there must be the priority of worship within the home and I can tell you is, and be absolutely honest how much that I have failed on that very thing and we fail because we inevitably think to ourselves well we're worshipping together on Sunday we're worshipping together on Wednesday and, and we, we really just give ourselves an excuse as to why we don't worship at home with our families I'm so guilty of that as well. But if we know that we need to do better when it comes to these very things, then we need to begin to do those things. To start fresh and to start new. To make worship a priority, not just when we gather collectively, but in the individual home. Whether you're single, whether you're married, and whether you have children, or whatever. Worship needs to be our priority. And in the coming weeks, we'll talk about those very things as well. But when you're looking at this, this the whole of, of these first four commandments, it deals with this. Honor the only true God. Don't make any likings of Him because there's nothing that you can compare Him to because He's too glorious. So worship Him rightly. Don't don't, don't relegate his name, his word, your identity in him as meaningless or empty. If he has pay, placed his name upon you, then you have great significance in the sight of God. And therefore, you need to reciprocate 
that back to him, that he is that important, that you would never take his name in vain. To speak of his name as if it's meaningless and it has, it has no authority to it. It has no, has no drive to it. And that goes with the things in his word. You know, when we talk about things of scripture, it should affect us when we're talking about it. Whether it's to affect us, whether bringing about maybe some conviction, depending on what we're talking about, or to bring about some great joy in us. It should affect us. But to be unaffected by the word is empty. That's emptiness. That's meaningless. And here's the the only sovereign, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the King of kings and the Lord of lords that has called you to be his own. And therefore our lives are to reflect that very thing that we are showing forth who he is by our very lives. We're showing forth who he is by, by the truth of scripture and by the names that we speak of who he is and to set aside that day in order to honor him as we should if we can do these things and we make these things a priority and and delight in doing these things because even though there's the prohibition that you shall not have any other gods before him the positive side of this is you get to have him the one true god you get to have him that's the 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 positive He's yours and you're his. And so then the way that we worship should reflect that joy and that delight that we have in him. The day that we set aside should reflect that joy and that delight that we have in him. And the way that we speak of him should reflect the joy and delight and the appreciation and the adoration that we ought to have for him for calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if we can get these right and Thank the Lord that His mercies are new every morning. If we can get these right and begin to do them right, then when it comes to these others on the other side, then we can do these a lot better when it comes to our interaction with each other. So next Wednesday, we will go over the part of the Ten Commandments that deal with our relationship to one another. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for our time together. Uh, Thank you, Father, for this portion of your word. And Father, we pray that that we would be convicted uh, for being at ease, giving ourselves excuses for things, and, and not giving ourselves wholly over to you to delight in you as we should. Father, forgive us that we have not valued you as we should have. We have not ascribed the worth to you as we should have. But thank you that even in our feeble efforts uh, and the times that we come together that the Spirit perfects our prayers and perfects our worship. Thank you that he continually shapes us and molds us to do better as a result of your word. Thank you so much that one day we will do this perfectly when we stand in your very presence. Father, help us to be a church that honors you not only here in this gathering, but a church that honors you in our homes. Help us to make that a priority. Father, to you be the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.